One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Radio Westeros, episode 21. It is written in prophecy. Boilers all books. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and with me, as always, is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi, and I'm podcasting from England. And today we have an episode all about prophecies and the mysterious characters who make them. Yeah, there are heaps of prophecies in these books. George uses them time and again as a literary device, and we'll be looking closely at what they might mean and what they could tell us about the future of the story. And that's one of the purposes of prophecies in the books. If the reader can interpret them correctly, they might get a glimpse of the future. This creates intrigue, depth, and excitement as fans puzzle over them. And in-universe, prophecies can dramatically affect the plot as characters interpret or rather misinterpret them, and so the plot can be driven by these misinterpretations. Good examples of this are Melisandre believing Stannis is Azor High, and Cersei seeming to push the Valonqar prophecy possibly towards self-fulfillment. And so we've covered the Valonqar in our Jamie and Cersei episode, but still today we have an episode packed with prophecy. And usually we like to theorise a bit, but today we're going to let our hair down and really get into crackpot and tinfoil mode. This is what prophecies are all about. George is really encouraging the reader to formulate crackpot theories with the cryptic and puzzling way he writes a lot of them. Not to mention the mysteriousness of some of the characters that deliver them. Yeah, so plenty of cracked pottery today. It kind of goes with the territory. We'll be looking at the stallion who mounts the world, a Dothraki prophecy central to their culture. We'll also look at the character and prophecies of the drowned simpleton Patchface who likes to riddle about the sea. And we'll look at the House of the Undying, where Danny gets visions of the future. And speaking of visions of the future... We'll also consider the prophetic talents of an albino dwarf, the Ghost of High Heart. And we'll take a look at some of the central prophecies that could be hugely important to the plot. Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa, and the Prince That Was Promised. We'll also look at Marwyn the Mage and offer up some new theories about him. Finally, we'll look at Quaith and her prophecies, and we'll also offer up a brand new theory on her identity. With a song from the fandom and the usual readings, that's the episode. So, a really packed episode today, full of speculation and our own brand of crackpot and tinfoil. We are Radio Westeros, and here's our look at prophecies in A Song of Ice and Fire. Prophecies 
We wanted to begin today by quickly discussing what George R. R. Martin has said about the use of prophecies as a literary device. So here's two quotes that we found. Okay, so this one is from a relatively recent Entertainment Weekly interview. George said, Prophecy is a staple element in fantasy, but it's tricky. You want to play with the notion of prophecies coming true, but in an unexpected way. You want to be unpredictable about it. Shakespeare is the ultimate example of that. When the forest of Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane Castle, Macbeth will fall. Everybody laughs. How can the forest come to the castle? But Malcolm came camouflaged with branches and so on. You have to look at prophecies carefully and look at the weasel wording of them. And in another interview, George said this. Prophecies are a double-edged sword. You have to handle them very carefully. I mean, they can add depth and interest to a book, but you don't want to be too literal or too easy. In the Wars of the Roses, there was one lord who had been prophesied that he would die beneath the walls of a certain castle, and he was superstitious at that sort of wall, so he never came anywhere near that castle. He stayed thousands of leagues away from that particular castle because of the prophecy. However, he was killed in the first battle of St. Paul de Vance, and when they found him dead, he was outside of an inn whose sign was the picture of that castle. So, you know, that's the way prophecies come true in unexpected ways. Okay, so some insight there from George. The key points here are George's emphasis on prophecies coming true, but in unexpected ways. And he gives two examples of that. He says you also have to be careful for weasel wording, so there might be trickery from the author. And he also says that prophecies shouldn't be too literal or too easy. So while it's easy to overthink sometimes, clearly it's not a good idea to underthink either. And this all underlines the fact that Prophecies can be types of puzzles, a game between the author and the reader. As we will see today, there are many different prophecies in the books, from confusing riddles from Patchface to ancient ones from Ashai. And we'll not only give our own call on a lot of them, but we'll also try to represent popular ideas that have come from the fandom. So let's get going with our look at prophecy. As swift as the wind he rides, and behind him his calisar covers the earth, men without number, with their axe shining in their hands like blades of razor grass. Fierce as a storm this prince will be. His enemies will tremble before him, and their wives will weep tears of blood and rend their flesh in grief. The bells in his hair will sing his coming, and the milkmen in the stone tents will fear his name. Okay, so we're going to begin with a look at the first prophecy that we hear about in the books. It comes from the Dothraki culture and is called the Stallion Who Mounts the World. We get our first whiff of this prophecy in Danny's fourth chapter in Game. Jura, who's acting as a cultural intermediary between the Dothraki and Danny, says this about Vais Dothrak. Only the crones of the Doshkaleen dwell permanently in the sacred city, them and their slaves and servants. 
Yet Faye's Dothrak is large enough to house every man of every Kalasar, should all the Karls return to the mother at once. The crones have prophesied that one day that will come to pass, and so Vase Dothrak must be ready to embrace all its children. And later in Danny 5, Jorah adds this. The stallion is the Kyle of Kyle's promised an ancient prophecy child. He will unite the Dothraki into a single Kalasar and ride to the ends of the earth, or so it was promised. All the people in the world shall be his herd. So let's first consider the age of this prophecy and where it might have come from. We think, as with all prophecies, it's a really good idea to consider who might have made them. If you hear Mel making a prophecy, we can wonder if there's an error in there. If it comes from the ghost of High Heart, it's bound to be more reliable. So with an ancient prophecy, we think that it's quite wise to try and understand the people who originally made it and the journey it's taken to get to the current story. Yeah, so let's look at the prophecy's age and what might have happened. First of all, Vais Dothrak is set up to house all of the Dothraki people from all Kalasars in one place. Danny thinks it looks ten times as large as Pentos, so even if she's exaggerating here, Vais Dothrak is truly on an epic scale. However, it's also pretty much empty when Danny arrives there, so a very curious combination, and one which has an explanation in the name Vais Dothrak. It means City of Riders. Yet the Dothraki are nomadic horse riders. It seems like they've built this city and its abundant accommodation because of something they believe will happen in the future because of a prophecy. The World Book calls the Dothraki a young race, and though it's difficult to gauge, Face Dothrak might have been established post-doom. This could make the stallion who mounts the world prophecy no more than a few hundred years old. However, Jorah calls the prophecy ancient, which in a Song of Ice and Fire terms would likely mean older than a few hundred years. It's possible the prophecy goes back far longer, since we know the Dothraki ancestors came from beyond the Bone Mountains. The prophecy might have been carried in their culture for thousands of years, eventually leading them westward and to the foundation of Vaistothrak. But whether the prophecy goes back eons or is more recent, what's interesting is the notion that the Dothraki might have founded their holy city because of a prophecy which we think is likely. This is a great example of how belief in prophecy can affect things on a very large scale. If the Dothraki, or even Proto-Dothraki, believe they had to found a large city to meet the requirements of a prophecy, then in doing so, the prophecy has changed the entire nature of Essos. Yeah, Vaes Dothrak gave them a place to use as a base, and they went on to conquer and pillage many cities and towns in Essos, bringing back fallen idols and spoils to their holy city from all corners of the continent. Without Vaes Dothrak as their base, they surely wouldn't have been as successful as merely a nomadic race. Okay, so we know the prophecy is old, possibly very old, and at the heart of Dothraki culture and belief. The stallion who mounts the world is almost like a religion to these people. Next, we should consider how the prophecy was made. 
We think there's a big clue when Danny sees the one-eyed crone in Vase Dothrak. Here's the quote. As the smoke ascended, the chanting died away, and the ancient crone closed her single eye, the better to peer into the future. So we know red priests gaze into flames to get a glimpse of the future, and here's the Dothraki parallel. They seem to do the same, but with smoke. So it seems that sometime in the past, crones were looking into the smoke and saw the stallion who mounts the world, whatever that may be, and also realized that in the future they'd need a very large city as the Kalasars would one day unite together. Yeah, and so these visions were passed down from generation to generation and taken very seriously by the Dothraki. So now let's look closer at what we know of the prophecy and talk about candidates and what the implications are for the story. Okay, let's consider what that one-eyed crone says after peering into the smoke. It says, Finally the crone opened her eye and lifted her arms. I have seen his face and heard the thunder of his hooves, she proclaimed in a thin, wavery voice. The thunder of his hooves, the others chorused. As swift as the wind he rides, and behind him his kalasar covers the earth, men without number, with arachs shining in their hands like blades of razor grass. Fierce as a storm this prince will be, his enemies will tremble before him, and their wives will weep tears of blood and rend their flesh in grief. The bells in his hair will sing his coming, and the milkmen in their stone tents will fear his name. The old woman trembled and looked at Danny almost as if she were afraid. The prince is riding, and he shall be the stallion who mounts the world. The stallion who mounts the world, the onlookers cried in echo, until the night rang to the sound of their voices. The one-eyed crone peered at Danny. What shall he be called, the stallion who mounts the world? She stood to answer. He shall be called Rago, she said, using the words that Jiqui had taught her. Her hands touched the swell beneath her breasts protectively as a roar went up from the Dothraki. Rago, they screamed. Rago, Rago, Rago. So Rago was the first stallion who mounts the world candidate. We see here the Doshkaleen crone declared Danny's unborn child as the chosen one. However, as we know, things didn't work out and Rago was still born leading some readers to believe this prophecy was false and will never come into fruition. However, we should recall George's assertion that prophecies can come true in unexpected ways, and Danny's current predicament at the end of Dance, where the Dothraki seem like they're re-emerging in the story. There's also a vision in the House of the Undying that, Quote, beneath the mother of mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, their grey heads bowed. If this House of the Undying vision hasn't come into fruition yet, and all things considered, it seems to us very likely that Danny will once again end up in Vase Dothrak. We can think of no other reason for George to take Danny backtracking if it's not to witness the fulfilment of the stallion who mounts the world prophecy and see the Kalasars unite to facilitate a large-scale invasion of Westeros. Okay, so we have two candidates here and we're going to look at them. First is that the stallion who mounts the world is none other than Daenerys. 
She is the most popular choice in the fandom, and she was being bowed to by the crones in that House of the Undying vision. She's proven adept at uniting people and is a leader who's already wanted to bring the Dothraki across the Narrow Sea. The stallion is described as fierce as a storm, and Danny's nickname is Stormborn. The stallion has bells in his hair, and Danny has bells. Finally, the stallion is said to one day ride to the ends of the earth, and some readers anticipate Danny might do something like that by the end of the story. However, on the flip side, stallions are obviously male. People do point to the gender fluidity of the Valyria word for prince, which is a good point, but still, some ancient crone has described this prophesied person as a stallion, a male horse. So we think this gender issue is quite problematic and can't think of a way Danny fits the stallion mounting the world title. Anyway, there's the arguments for and against Danny. And so let's look at the other candidates. Yeah, so let's look at Drogon being the stallion that mounts the world. And Yoke Boy actually wrote about this way back in 2012. Drogon is the other candidate because not only was he present in Vaes Dothrak in A Game of Thrones in egg form, perhaps figuratively as much Danny's as yet unborn child as Rhaegar was, but he's also with Danny in the Dothraki Sea. And if she's taken back there, willingly or not, Trogon could make a big impact at Vaes Dothrak. Yeah, he definitely could. And so the idea with Drogon goes like this. What if an ancient crone looked into the smoke and saw a united Kalasar behind a dragon? And if this crone had never seen a dragon before, she might not know what it was or what to call it. As we know, the Dothraki associate things they don't understand as horse-related. For example, they believe the stars are horses made of fire. And a stallion to the Dothraki is something they can ride on the back of. Right, so what if the person who made the prophecy described the dragon as a stallion? And what if mounting the world means riding the wind, flying? Given the Dothraki's obsession with horses and riders, it would make sense to use this allegory. Yeah, mounting the world, being like riding the wind. The stallion who mounts the world, being a flying dragon through the cultural lens of a Dothraki crone. And that phase Dothrak, when they're talking about the stallion who mounts the world, the prophet says she heard the thunder of his hooves. Well, in Dance, when Drogon shows up at Daznak's pit, it says, He flapped his wings once as he swept back above the sands, and the sound was like a clap of thunder. So the stallion makes the same sounds as Drogon. It says his enemies will tremble before him, which makes sense, and being described as fierce as a storm is fitting too, being airborne. Drogon doesn't currently have any bells, but that can be easily remedied once Danny starts using him to conquer. Well, for Drogon to be the stallion who mounts the world, he would have to win over the Dothraki. Let's say Danny ends up in Vase Dothrak, 
being taken to the Doshkalin in the Dothraki tradition. Perhaps Drogon could come to Danny's aid. And remember, there's no weapons in Vase Dothrak, so Drogon would really be unstoppable. He could display his power, and remember that Dothraki follow power, and in flying, they might see that as riding. Okay, so there's the case for Drogon being the stallion, and whether it's Danny or Drogon, it might actually amount to the same thing, as Danny will probably be on her dragon's back anyway. But despite a very good case for Danny, the Radio Westeros pick for the stallion who mounts the world is Drogon. Yeah, we're gonna go with Drogon, and we can't wait to see what happens next in Danny's arc with the possible fulfillment of this prophecy and of the House of the Undying Crone Vision. Very exciting prospects, I'm sure you'll agree. And anyway, that's our look at the stallion who mounts the world. Lord Snow, who will lead this ranging? Are you offering yourself, sir? Do I look so foolish? I will lead it. We will march into the sea and out again. Under the waves, we will ride seahorses, and mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming. Oh, oh, oh! Okay, so now let's talk about a character with seemingly prophetic abilities, Patchface. Patchface enters the story in Maester Cressid's Clash of Kings prologue. He's a fool on Dragonstone who appears unrelatable to most people, save the lonely and isolated little girl Shireen, and the two seem to have a strong friendship. So let's start with his description and get a feel for him, and then look at his backstory. This is what Davos thinks about Patchface. Doe soft and slump-shouldered, his broad face tattooed in a motley pattern of red and green squares, Patchface wore a helm made of a rack of deer antlers strapped to a tin bucket. A dozen bells hung from the times and rang when he moved, which meant constantly since the fool seldom stood still. Okay, so those bells are always ringing, and paired with his weird ramblings and riddles, the reader can soon imagine that spending any amount of time around Patchface would be rather annoying. However, because of his relationship with Shireen and his tragic backstory, the fool is suffered by Stannis and company. Now, let's look at that backstory. Yeah, it's really important in understanding both the character and his prophetic abilities. Lord Stefan found Patchface as a boy in Lys, and thought he was a splendid fool. It says, Only a boy, yet nimble as a monkey, and witty as a dozen courtiers. He juggles and riddles and does magic, and he can sing prettily in four tongues. We have bought his freedom and hope to bring him back with us. Robert will be delighted with him, and perhaps in time, he will even teach Stannis how to laugh. And the reader will remember that on the journey home, Stannis and Robert watched as their parents' ship broke up on Shipbreaker Bay. And on that ship was Patchface. 
Many men were killed, but on the third day, amidst the many corpses, Patchface washed up on shore and was found white and with cold, wrinkled skin. He was about to be taken to the burial wagon when he coughed up water. He was alive. And it says that no one ever explained those two days the fool had been lost in the sea. But Patchface was clearly changed by the experience. Crescent says... The witty, clever lad that Lord Stephan had written of never reached Storm's End. The boy they found was someone else, broken in body and mind, hardly capable of speech, much less of wit. So it seems Patchface has suffered some kind of brain damage. He's referred to as a lackwit in the appendix, yet while his experience in the tragedy at sea might have deprived Patchface of much and more, he seems to have gained some kind of prophetic abilities mixed in with an obsession with the sea. Okay, so let's look at some of his ramblings. Patchface fits the notion of a wise fool, something which Mel spells out early on. It is sometimes hard to discern what are nuggets of prophetic insights and what's just the babblings of a simpleton. It's in Storm that we first realise, without much doubt, that his ramblings sometimes have foresight behind them. So let's look at this. This is the clearest example of prophetic Patchface. And it's when he's playing a hide-and-seek game with Shireen. It says, Fool's blood, king's blood, blood on the maiden's thigh, but chains for the guests and chains for the bridegroom, I, I, I. And this is commonly interpreted as foreshadowing the Red Wedding. Fool's blood for Jingle Bell, King's blood for Rob, blood on the maiden's thigh for Rosalind losing her virginity, and the chains for Edmure, the Great John, and so on. So it's a perfect fit, and looking through Patchface's dialogue might bear some more fruit. But Patchface talks in riddles, and it's a lot harder to decipher some of his other ramblings. Yeah, Patchface is notoriously tricky, but let's go through those ramblings and see what we can make of them. When we first meet Patchface, even before he's been named, we get this. Under the sea, the birds have scales for feathers. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Okay, so Patchface uses this under the sea line. Some people think that it means death, but we think it's used in a more vague sense and could just denote Patchface is using his abilities and metaphors. With birds having scales for feathers, we think it's worth remembering what's going on at this point. On the timeline, this is about a week after the birth of the dragons far away in Essos, and Patchface is rambling about birds with scales. Yeah, so we're going with the simple explanation of the dragon birth for this one. Okay, next. It is always summer under the sea. The merwives wear nanny moans in their hair and weave gowns of silver seaweed. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Okay, so we have an idea for this and I've seen other people interpret it similarly too. We're looking for someone wearing something in their hair. Nenimone seems to be Patchface mispronouncing anemone. Anemones can be purple and be poisonous, and they're being worn in the hair, so this makes us think of Sansa's purple hairnet. Next, there are silver gowns mentioned, so to fit, 
Sansa would have to wear a silver gown to Joffrey's wedding. And in fact, Sansa did wear a silver gown to Joff's wedding with that purple hair nut. Here's the quote. Sansa wore a gown of silvery satin trimmed in fair. Yeah, and I don't know what you listeners think, but that all seems like a good fit of the purple wedding to us. And it's told in a quite cryptic and slightly different style to other prophetic characters. So on to another. This one's told as he's hopping from one foot to the other. The shadows come to dance, my lord. Dance, my lord. Dance, my lord. The shadows come to stay, my lord. Stay, my lord. Stay, my lord. Yeah, so the first thing to note about this is that it might be an important one. Patchface repeats this numerous times, the only one he does this with. Shireen notes that, quote, he sings that all the time. I told him to stop, but he won't. And Crescent thinks it's that same dreadful song he'd sung this morning. So Patchface says shadows have come to dance and shadows have come to stay. One fandom interpretation is that this is about Renly. He was killed by a shadow, and in this scene, Patchface is wearing his bucky and antler helm like Renly's. We think it's a really good idea, but it's also worth noting that Patchface says the shadows have come to stay, and Renly's shadow disappeared. Yes, it did. And another idea is the shadows in Danny's tent when Miri does her blood magic, but they also disappeared. So we're going to throw another idea out there, that this could be about the others coming back. The first time we see the others, they're described as shadows, more than once in fact. And also, dance can mean fight. So shadows have come to fight. And remember, Waymar Royce asked the other to dance with him. Yeah, and they might be here to stay. Okay, so that's three different ideas for you listeners to chew on. And on to the next one. Under the sea, smoke rises in bubbles, and flames burn green and blue and black. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Okay, so the common fandom interpretation is that this is a foretelling of the wildfire attack at the Blackwater. There's the green fire mentioned, however, blue and black flames too, which doesn't seem to fit very well. And another idea is that it's glass candles. There's green candles and black ones too. But when Stannis lists the obsidian colours, there's definitely no blue. So of the two, we prefer that it's black water. But like we said, it's not entirely perfect. So there's always the chance that it might be something that hasn't happened yet. And next we have this. Under the sea, the old fish eat the young fish. And this might just be one of Patchface's short ramblings. Like we said, it's sometimes difficult to tell. But on the other hand, we can't help think of Old Nan's tale, where it says that the others hunted the maids through frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. So the old eating the young there... Something which might yet happen in the current story. But on the other hand, remember that in most interpretations of the events at Winterfell in Dance, there has been cannibalism, which this old eating the young seems to refer to. So could this be a reference to Frey Pies, maybe? Well, it could be. 
Now the next one is very difficult. It's confused the fandom, and to be honest, us too. Under the sea, the mermen feast on starfish soup, and all the serving men are crabs. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Okay, so mermen, starfish, crabs, what does it mean? Again, we wonder if it's a Frey Pie reference. You have the mermen being mandalies and sea life eating starfish, which might resemble cannibalism, although that could be a stretch. On the timeline, Ramsay and Jane's wedding had happened months before, which doesn't really work in the idea's favour. But if the earlier reference was also to Frey Pies, it's possible they could work together. Mm, possibly, but another school of thought revolves more around sigils and proposes that Patchface is talking about an event yet to happen. The mermen are Manderleys, a crab is the sigil of House Burrell, who were those on the sisters who allowed Davos to go on to Manderley at White Harbor. But this is where the idea gets stuck. Who are the starfish? Fans have wondered if the starfish are Bolton sigils with their arms outstretched, or even a hand, like the hand of the king. Both of these are good ideas. However, we feel unsatisfied and think this one is still up for grabs. Maybe things will be clearer when we get to the winds of winter. Yes, hopefully a lot of things will be clearer. (laughs) Next is when Patchface names John as the crow and goes on... Under the sea, the crows are white as snow. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. So, given he's just been talking about John, this could be a simple one. And so lots of people think this is John's death, that he might die and turn pale. Yeah, white as snow, it seems like a decent fit. And fans have pointed to Bran's coma dream vision of John's skin growing pale. And finally, when John is planning the ranging to Hardhome, we get this. I will lead it. We will march into the sea and out again. Under the waves, we will ride seahorses and mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) That's another difficult one. Marching into the sea and riding seahorses could simply be an army boarding ships and then disembarking. Mermaids blowing seashells to announce our coming reminds us of the Night's Watch blowing the horns when the others arrive, though here Patchface might be talking about rangers blowing horns when the Night's Watch arrives. And this being the failing Hardhome mission with dead things in the water doesn't quite make sense because it's already happened, and now John is planning another overland mission. We guess the seahorses could simply mean horses, If we had to guess, we'd say this is about a future Night's Watch mission of some kind, but this one is very difficult to find an answer for, so we'd best keep it vague and keep an open mind. Yeah, that's right, and one other thing to keep in mind is that this one was from quite near the end of A Dance with Dragons, so it is possible that it's something yet to happen. And so that's our look at Patchface's prophecies. They have a riddle quality to them that we don't see elsewhere. Remember, before he was washed up, it's stated that he had a talent for riddles, so it's interesting how that now manifests. One more thing we want to look at is something Mel says about Patchface. It's in A Dance with Dragons when she says, That creature is dangerous. Many a time I have glimpsed him in my flames. 
Sometimes there are skulls about him, and his lips are red with blood. Yeah, so lots of fans have taken this to mean that Patchface is going to do something evil. If there's one word that people describe Patchface as, it's creepy. And this quote probably adds a lot to that. However, our view on Patchface is that... While it might be creepy in some senses, like the rumour he has cold skin or his tattoos, he doesn't seem to us at all capable of being evil. In fact, he seems quite sweet, especially in his relationship with Shireen. Here's a quote that outlines that relationship. Then he heard a faint ringing of bells and a child's giggle, and suddenly the full patch face popped from the bushes, shambling along as fast as he could go with the Princess Shireen hot on his heels. You come back now, she was shouting after him. Patches, you come back. Hmm. And Davos ends that scene by saying the sight made him smile. We don't see anything in Patchface's character so far that denotes an evil side. No motive, no ambition, no signs of violence. And what's more is that this vision comes from Melisandre, who's always misinterpreting visions. She's saying he's dangerous because there are skulls all around him and his lips are red with blood. Well, Mel also sees, with similar wording, skulls all around Jon Snow. And that was denoting his death, not the deaths of other people. And we think the blood on his mouth which makes him seem quite scary, could be his own blood, and he could have been hit in the mouth, for example. Perhaps Patchface is actually the victim in Mel's vision. Isn't that the kind of misleading mistake she would make? (laughs) Yes, it seems like it. And there's a school of thought that Patchface will try to harm Shireen. However, we think that he is far more likely to defend her. And that is our assessment of Patchface, the tragic story of a talented boy turned lackwit fool whose prophetic ramblings make all of our heads hurt. With his nuggets of prophecy, Patchface fits into the wise fool trope, which has been used through the ages in literature, such as the fool in King Lear. There's actually an interesting wise fool Wikipedia if you want to look it up, and Patchface ticks nearly all the criteria for that trope. It's basically describing him to a T. And one of the key characteristics of a wise fool is innocence of the heart, and that's how we see Patchface. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Okay, so now let's clink our glasses and drink some shade of the evening with a look at the House of the Undying. And we'll start with a reading. Here's Danny and the Undying Ones. I have come for the gift of truth. In the long haul, the things I saw, were they true visions or lies? Past things or things to come? What did they mean? The shape of shadows, morrows not yet made, drink from the cup of ice, drink from the cup of fire, mother of dragons, child of three. Three? Three heads has the dragon. 
fires you must light. One for life, and one for death, and one to love. Three mounts you must ride. One to bed, and one to dread, and one to love. Three treasons you will know. Once for blood, and once for gold, and once for love. I don't... I don't understand. Help me. Show me. Help her. Show her. Then phantoms shivered through the murk, images in indigo. Viserys screamed as the molten gold ran down his cheeks and filled his mouth. A tall lord with copper skin and silver-gold hair stood beneath the banner of a fiery stallion at Burning City behind him. Rubies flew like drops of blood from the chest of a dying prince, and he sank to his knees in the water, and with his last breath murmured a woman's name. Mother of dragons, daughter of death. Glowing like sunset, a red sword was raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king who cast no shadow. A cloth dragon swayed in the poles amidst a cheering crowd. From a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow. Her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkened stream beneath a sea of stars. A corpse stood at the prow of a ship, eyes bright in his dead face, gray lips smiling sadly. A blue flower grew from a chink in a ball of ice and filled the air with sweetness. Mother of dragons, bride of fire. Okay, so we hope that you enjoyed that reading. And now it's time to talk about some more prophecies we see in Danny's story as we look at A Clash of Kings and the House of the Undying. Payat Pri had first met Danny in Vase Toloro, a slim and pale man whose lips have been turned blue by Shade of the Evening, a curious and seemingly hallucinogenic drink made with the blue leaves of the mysterious black trees surrounding the House of the Undying. Anyway, Pyatt seems very interested in Danny and invites her to the home of the Warlocks of Karth, the House of the Undying. In a moment of desperation, Danny decides it's time to make the trip, and a trip is what she gets. She does, and when she arrives at the house, it's far more humble than she'd imagined. The tiles on the roof are falling off, and the building is described as crumbling, and Danny now understands why Zaro called it the Palace of Dust. Jorah and her blood riders are more than just unimpressed by the building. They're alarmed, and they all warn her that this is a dangerous place. Yet Danny's determined to seek what truths the warlocks can offer, and at Piat Pri's request, she agrees to enter the House of the Undying all by herself, save for her baby dragon, Drogon. When Danny gets to the door, she sees the smallest dwarf she's ever seen with tiny pinkish hands holding a silver tray. 
On the tray is a flute of shade of the evening, and she's asked to drink. She's told to expect to see, quote, visions of loveliness and visions of horror, wonders and terrors, sights and sounds of days gone by and days to come and days that never were. And so the stage is set for Danny, not just for a dangerous journey to meet the undying ones, but for the biggest sequence of prophetic and cryptic visions in the books. And this begins as she journeys through the house, where she comes across open rooms. Let's take a look inside the rooms and analyse them, and then do the same with that vision sequence. We should mention that the fandom has really combed over the House of the Undying so many times. We don't have too much in the way of original ideas that we can add, but we'll just talk about the general consensus of the fandom and add our own thoughts when we can. Okay, so first of all, here's a passage. In one room, a beautiful woman sprawled naked on the floor while four little men crawled over her. They had rattish pointed faces and tiny pink hands, like the servitor who had brought her the glass of shade. One was pumping between her thighs, another savaged her breasts, worrying at the nipples with his wet red mouth, tearing and chewing. And this is a very weird and dark scene, a woman being raped by four tiny men. Keeping in mind that these kind of things can be non-literal, the fandom consensus is that this is a grotesque metaphor. The beautiful woman might represent Westeros, and the four little men would be the four kings who are still fighting over the lands. So with Renly dead, that's Rob, Balon, Joffrey and Stannis. And so the scene could therefore be a metaphor for the current destruction taking place in Westeros. The battles, the raping and the pillaging, all so damaging to Westeros and all done under the banners of those four remaining kings. Okay, so next is a room of slaughter. A feast of corpses, it says. This seems very much like we're seeing the Red Wedding before it happened, and it highlights that the Undying is as much about showing the reader what's to come as it is about informing Danny. Next, we get a glimpse of Danny's past as we see the house with the red door and Sir William Darry. Danny yearns for his protection, but then she remembers that he's dead. This was a defining moment in Danny's childhood, it seems. From what we know, it was after Sir William's death that Viserys had to care for her, and she lost her home at the House with the Red Door. The Targaryen children were soon running around the streets of the Free Cities, in poverty, selling the Mother's Crown and so on. So definitely a pivotal moment for Danny, and the death of Willem marks the first scene that seems personal to her. Okay, and next we see a very large and familiar room. The king on a large barbed throne. This can only be the throne room in King's Landing. The dragon skulls on the walls date this to before King Robert had them taken down. And when the old king with silver gray hair says, let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat, the game is quickly given away. This must be the mad king, Ares Targaryen. He's obviously giving orders to torch King's Landing with those caches of wildfire. But as we know, his plans were foiled, in large part, by the intervention of Jaime Lannister. At this point in Clash, though, Jaime hasn't yet given his side of the story, so it's only in hindsight that this scene makes sense. 
And it's also worth noting something very obvious. Ares is Danny's father. He died before she was born. There's no evidence that Danny recognised him here. It's kind of sad that she sees her own father unknowingly. Notice the contrast with the preceding vision of Willem Dowry, where she feels very affectionate towards a man who wasn't her father. And it won't be the only time when she sees family members in the House of the Undying. No, in fact, the very next scene, we get a man who looked very similar to Viserys, but not quite. When we see him playing a harp, we know it can only be Rhaegar, and this vision is very intriguing for prophecy fans. George has confirmed it's Ilya with baby Aegon, and Rhaegar saying, he is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. He also says that there must be one more, the dragon has three heads, and this is the key piece of evidence that Rhaegar wanted a third child to fulfill a prophecy which, paired with the fact that Ilya became too frail to bear children, is a significant part of a lot of RLJ theories. So, the Song of Ice and Fire, the prince that was promised, and the dragon has three heads, all together in this vision, marking it as highly significant. And Danny actually does recognise Rhaegar there, as she tells Jorah of the scene later on. And it might be significant that Rhaegar appears to see Danny in the doorway, it's interesting how this hallucinogenic experience has allowed George to show how tricky visions and prophecies can be, as well as momentarily bringing important characters back to life and also showing the possible future. We can't help but to think about Bran's developing ability to time travel via the Weirnet. We could see a lot more of this kind of thing. Yeah, we do look forward to that. And after following the initial instruction to keep to the door on the right, Danny soon finds herself in the company of the Undying Ones, who say that she's passed every test so far and offer to share their knowledge with her. They say they've been waiting a thousand years and that they sent the comet. Whether they actually did is another question. But now a blue human heart appears and begins to beat, each pulse sending out a wash of indigo light. It's a very trippy visual and fitting to what comes next. Yes, she now notices the Undying Ones are not breathing and wonders if they're dead. Danny announces that she's come for the gift of truth. Amidst whispers, indigo light and the strange Undying Ones... Danny's heart starts to beat in unison with the blue heart. Now we get a burst of whispers and visions, and so let's take a look at those. Okay, so we're going to break them down to make it easier to understand. Danny hears, Three fires must you light, one for life, one for death, and one to love. Three mounts must you ride, one to bed, and one to dread, and one to love. Three treasons will you know, once for blood, and once for gold, and once for love. So three fires must you light, one for life. The consensus here is that this one has already been fulfilled when Danny lit the funeral pyre and hatched the dragons, giving life. So that kind of makes sense and seems straightforward enough. However, the ones for death and one to love are more problematic. 
Yeah, and the only idea we had for death is that Danny uses a fire to stop the spread of the pale mare in Marine, which we actually mentioned in our Danny episode. A fire lit for death obviously insinuates destruction. And there are schools of thought in the fandom that this could already have been fulfilled in the burning of the House of the Undying or in the Dracarys moment in Storm on Krasnus. Yeah, some ideas at least. And the fire lit for love is even more troublesome. And we guess at this stage, we just have to acknowledge that there are things in the future of the story Nobody in the fandom can accurately predict. They could be things from the final book, A Dream of Spring. Okay, next. Three mounts you must ride, one to bed, one to dread, and one to love. So a lot of people interpret these mounts as being lovers, though we would go with mounts being literal rides rather than any sexual connotation. The mount to bed has been speculated to be her silver, the horse which she mounted before losing her virginity to Drogo, and so a mount to bed. Yeah, we'd agree with that one. Which would make the mount to dread Drogon, her dragon who's sure to be dreaded. Where this line of thought leaves us with the Mount to Love, we just don't know. Again, perhaps something unknowable at this present time. And next, three treasons will you know. Once for blood, once for gold, and once for love. So Mary might be the treason for blood. For gold is tougher, so our idea is that at some stage, Danny will lose a dragon. George has hinted at there being another Dance of the Dragons, which might mean she somehow loses a dragon to Aegon, whether he's fake or not. And we expect these treason prophecies to have major bearing on Danny's life, so this would be a fit. Could someone, for example, Brown Ben Plum, be bribed into selling off one of Danny's dragons? Yeah, that would certainly constitute a treason, and on the scale we'd expect to be included on this list. We chose Brown Ben Plum because he's shown his capacity for betrayal, and he's a sellsword who, as we know, like to line their pockets when they get the chance. And Winter Winter's spoiler alert? It seems from a Wind spoiler chapter that Ben will be back on Danny's side. And we found an interesting line in Tyrion 2, Winter Winter. Brown Ben Plum will play to mail over boiled leather. The silk cloak flowing from his shoulders was his only concession to vanity. It rippled when he moved, the colour changing from pale violet to deep purple. So it's interesting to consider the description of the cloak changing from pale violet to deep purple as possible foreshadowing of a turned cloak in light of the fact that while Daenerys's eyes are described on numerous occasions as violet, young Griff's eyes are described by Tyrion as dark purple. So Brown Ben turning cloak from Danny to Aegon and perhaps delivering a dragon too is our idea there. And finally, a treason for love. All three columns end in love, and they all seem so difficult. Danny actually thinks that this one's Jorah, but remember characters are more than fallible in their prophecy interpretations. What Danny didn't consider is that Jorah didn't betray her for love, he betrayed her for home. He was spying on her in order to get back to Westeros, so we think this could be a red herring. 
And yet we have no idea what the betrayal for love could be. So the running theme seems to be that we don't feel we have enough information to say what the love element is in those triads. And now let's move on to the visions, which to fit the theme of threes running through the scene are indeed presented in sets of three. Here's the first one. Viserys screamed as the molten gold ran down his cheeks and filled his mouth. A tall lord with copper skin and silver gold hair stood beneath the banner of a fiery stallion, a burning city behind him. Rubies flew like drops of blood from the chest of a dying prince, and he sank to his knees in the water, and with his last breath murmured a woman's name. And this set of three has the footnote, Mother of Dragons, Daughter of Death. So the first vision is very simple, Viserys getting his golden crown, and the second one is interesting. The fandom consensus is that this is Rago. This is what he would have done if he'd lived. It's like an unfulfilled tomorrow. The copper skin matches Drogo, and the silver gold hair is Targaryen, so it's a really good fit. Perhaps George did this because he wanted to include Rago, but as we know, he didn't really live, requiring a device like this to betray him in some way. And finally, there's Rhaegar dying on the trident. So the footnote makes sense. Daughter of death. These are three members of Danny's family who've died. Notice that some of these visions are very straightforward. There isn't the need to get too complicated with them. Okay, and next... Glowing like sunset, a red sword was raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king who cast no shadow. A cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. From a smoking tower, a great stone beast took wing, breathing shadow fire. And the footnote here is Slayer of Lies. So the blue-eyed king seems like Stannis. And the consensus on the cloth dragon is that it's Aegon, or Phaegon, that's fake Aegon, and that he's really a blackfire. Danny later calls the cloth dragon a mummer's dragon, which fits the idea Aegon is both the ex-mummer Varys' creature and that he's somehow not authentic. The fact Danny says mummer's dragons are used to give heroes something to fight might be a hint at the metatextual purpose of young Griff to the story. Quaithe also brings up the Mummer's Dragon once again in a prophecy in Dance, which we'll look at later. And there's much discussion about the great stone beast breathing Shadowfire, and we think probably the most fitting idea is that it's John Connington, the beast being the griffin of his house and the stone indicating his grayscale, the Shadowfire denoting that he's supporting a Blackfire. However, despite seeming like a good fit, we're not completely settled on John Con here. The smoking tower still isn't explained, and we'd also be looking at a duplication of the same Blackfire lie that came in the preceding vision, which isn't entirely satisfying. So we're going to leave this one open and see what happens in Winds. And it's interesting to look at the Slayer of Lies footnote. This might be telling us that Danny slays the three lies in this set of three, which would make the inclusion of Stannis very interesting, since we have no idea if or how those two might meet. But does Danny actually slay the people in these visions, or does she just slay the actual lie? Again, we're going to have to wait and see. 
Okay, in the final set, her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath a sea of stars. A corpse stood at the prow of a ship, eyes bright in his dead face, grey lips smiling sadly. A blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice and filled the air with sweetness. And this set is labelled Bride of Fire. So, the first one evokes Danny's time with Drogo, so people generally think it's him. And the last one, a blue flower growing from a chink in a wall of ice, seems to be Jon Snow, with all the references to blue roses in the RLJ theory. But the middle one, a corpse on the prow of a ship, smiling sadly, is a lot more difficult. Some people think it could be Euron Greyjoy being on a ship, while others go with John Connington, with him being a corpse with grey lips, remembering the grayscale again. We wonder about Victarion, but this is a tricky one. Yeah, another tricky one. And the Bride of Fire tag is equally perplexing. This might insinuate these are people Danny marries, although there is a lack of his star. Of course, Danny could marry four times and Hisdar is simply not part of this set. If Drogo is the first one, remember that he was a husband that Danny burned. And so in this respect, Bride of Fire really makes perfect sense there. However, if these are all husbands Danny ends up burning, a lot of Jon Snow fans won't want to hear that. Yeah, that's true, they won't. So this is quite a problematic set of three with this Bride of Fire label, but certainly it's very interesting. And Danny then sees a set of visions which seem very personal to her journey, of which only one seems unfulfilled by the end of the books, that one about the line of naked crones kneeling before her that we mentioned in the Stallion Who Mounts the World segment. Then the visions stop, and the undying seem to have a strange power over her. She's essentially paralyzed as they begin to bite and suck and lick her. Uh, and it's now that the undying regret insisting that she enters on her own, yet allow her to bring a fire-breathing dragon, as Drogon burns not only the undying, but the house too. Danny then escapes to find her bloodriders and Jura. So, all in all, a really strange and magical journey in the House of the Undying. In terms of prophecies, it was really crammed full. There's lots of quite straightforward ones, but still a significant number that have no satisfying answers at this time. That's our look at the House of the Undying. And hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Coming up next, we'll look at the ghost of High Heart. Beside the embers of their campfire, she saw Tom, Lem, and Greenbeard talking to a tiny little woman, a foot shorter than Arya and older than old Nan, all stooped and wrinkled and leaning on a gnarled black cane. Her white hair was so long it came almost to the ground. When the wind gusted, it blew about her head in a fine cloud. Her flesh was whiter, the color of milk, and it seemed to Arya that her eyes were red, though it was hard to tell from the bushes. The old gods stir and will not let me sleep, she heard the woman say. I dreamt I saw a shadow with a burning heart butchering a golden stag. I, I dreamt a man without a face waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung. On his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted with red tears on her cheeks, but when her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror. All this I dreamt, and more. Do you have gifts for me, to pay me for my dreams? Okay, so now let's talk about another unusual character who has quite accurate prophetic abilities, the Ghost of High Heart. She's an aging dwarf woman who, in our two meetings with her, delivers numerous prophecies, which we think the fandom has a really good grasp on. They're reasonably straightforward in the most part, at least with the hindsight of their resolution. And we first meet the ghost in a storm of swords at High Heart, which is in the Riverlands. We're with Arya and the Brotherhood Without Banners, who are looking for Beric and Thoros. When Arya is awoken by a storm, she sees members of the Brotherhood talking to a mysterious woman. Here's how she's described. A tiny little woman, a foot shorter than Arya and older than old Nan, all stooped and wrinkled and leaning on a gnarled black cane. Her white hair was so long it came almost to the ground. When the wind gusted, it blew about her head in a fine cloud. And further descriptions tell us her skin is white as milk and that she has red eyes. So with the white hair and skin and red eyes, we can ascertain that she's an albino, which are very rare in the story. The woman declares that the old gods are stirring and won't let her sleep. This is when we get our first set of visions that we'll analyse later, but she says that they appear to her in dreams. So clearly a connection with the old gods, and they seem to be giving her these special abilities. Prophetic dreams are one of the many devices George uses as a basis for prophetic abilities, others being the abilities of simpletons like we see with Patchface and Owen the Oaf, and more proactive magic such as flame readings with Thoros, Mel and Mokoro. Yeah, so the ghost of High Heart's old gods dreaming puts her alongside someone like Jojen Reed. And then there's the Targaryen dreaming abilities, although they seem not to do with the old gods. Anyway, the Brotherhood Without Banners trust in her abilities, and after making her first batch of prophecies, she demands payment for her dreams. 
She talks to Lem about kissing and death and then demands a song. And the next day, the woman is nowhere to be seen, and Aya is perplexed. She's trying to figure out who or what this unusual-looking and mysterious person is. She asks Tom if the children of the forest still dwelled on High Heart, which is a really interesting question that we'll come back to. Then Aya asks if she was a ghost, and so we can see why she's called the Ghost of High Heart. For what it's worth, nobody in the books names her as the Ghost of High Heart. That comes from the appendix only. Anyway, Tom says that she's not a ghost, but that she's, quote, only an old dwarf woman. A queer one, though, and evil-eyed. But she knows things she has no business knowing, and sometimes she'll tell you if she likes the look of you. Okay, that's our first meeting with the Ghost of High Heart. We do see her again when the BWB return to High Heart. It's a windy night and many of the camp are asleep. Aya notices a small pale shape behind the horses. She describes her as three feet tall, leaning on a cane. Again we get a description of her red eyes, and this time Aya compares her to John's direwolf, Ghost, who's another albino. And Aya thinks he was a ghost too. So then, Arya watches the ghost of High Heart talk with Thoros, Lem, and Beric. This time, she demands some wine for her dreams and a kiss from Lem. She says, his mouth will taste of lemons and mine of bones. So both times she talks to Lem, kisses and bones or death come up. This, in part, is what led Lady Gwyn to make the theory that Lem is the Knight of Skulls and Kisses, Richard Lonmouth, who was Rhaegar's squire. And you can catch the full theory in our BWB episode if you're interested in that. Anyway, after again settling for a song as payment, the Ghost of High Heart then says she hasn't been kissed for a thousand years. Now, we take this heavily salted, although we do think that she is pretty old, but that she's probably exaggerating there. Now we get another set of prophecies. Afterwards, she spots Arya and has a strange reaction to her. Here's the quote. The dwarf woman studied her with dim red eyes. I see you, she whispered. I see you, wolf child, blood child. I thought it was the Lord who smelled of death. She began to sob, her little body shaking. You're cruel to come to my hill, cruel. I gorged on grief at Summer Hall. I need none of yours. Be gone from here, dark heart. Be gone. So two really interesting things there. First of all, the ghost of High Heart was at Summer Hall and gorged on grief amidst the burning chaos and disaster of whatever happened there. Second, she really flips out when seeing Arya, calling her Dark Heart. We think, as others do, this could mean one of two things. That the ghost of High Heart can sense Aya will encounter deep tragedy and personal loss, remembering that the Red Wedding is approaching. Or that she can sense Aya's murderous side that's developing through her arc. The ghost then tells the Brotherhood about the upcoming wedding and reveals the song she loves to hear is Jenny's song. This seems to be about Jenny of Old Stones, and the ghost calls her My Jenny. She rocks and cries when she hears the song, and Thoros remarks that it's all she has left, further hints of her grief at Summerhall. And soon, the ghost vanishes as suddenly as she had appeared. Okay, so let's look at these prophetic dreams. They often use sigils, so are figurative. 
This figurative style seems to be a hallmark of these kind of dreams. And also, she seems to be very accurate. So, in the first meeting, she began with, I dreamt I saw a shadow with a burning heart, butchering a golden stag. I... Now, this seems like it's already happened. The flaming heart sigil has come from Mel, and Stannis has added it to his own sigil. Those two created a shadow baby that killed Renly, whose sigil is the golden stag. Now, some people find it troublesome that this has already happened, given the rest of the events from the Ghost of High Heart seem to be in the future. But it's been pointed out that we don't know exactly when she had this dream, since we don't know when the Brotherhood last visited her. And then the next one is this. A dreamt of a man without a face, waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung. On his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. So, this is the key evidence that Balon Greyjoy was killed by a faceless man, hired by Euron. So here's a man without a face, waiting on a swaying bridge, and later we learn that Balon has died after falling from a bridge. Here's the quote. The way I heard it in Lordsport, there was a blow coming in from the west, rain and thunder, and old King Balon was crossing one of them bridges when the wind got a hold of it and just tore the thing to pieces. He washed up two days later, all bloated and broken. Crabs ate his eyes, I hear. Yes, so perhaps the wind didn't get hold of Balon, but he was helped on his way by an assassin. Interestingly, there seems to be a crow on the shoulder of a faceless man, indicating some involvement from a crow. Now, Euron Crow's Eye arrived back from a voyage, suspiciously just in time to stake his claim in the Ironborn King's Moot. So, the fandom has wondered if Euron hired a faceless man to take out Balon, opening the path for Euron to be the new king of the Ironborn. Yeah, and we agree, and so arises the question, how did Euron pay for a faceless man? Remembering that Balon, as a king, must have commanded a high asking price. Again, the fandom has a strong answer for this one. Remember that Euron was once in possession of a dragon's egg. Here's an exchange between Euron and Victarion. I once held the dragon's egg in this hand, brother, Euron said. Show me this dragon's egg. I threw it in the sea during one of my dark moods. So is Euron really that stupid? Would he really throw away a priceless dragon's egg? We think not. And overall, this seems like a strong explanation for the ghost's prophecy. And next, there's this. I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted, with red tears on her cheeks. But when her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror. Okay, so this was one of many clues given to the reader relating to the Red Wedding and Lady Stoneheart. The Green Fork was noted as being swollen and making a deep, dark sound before the wedding, and this was the river Cat ended up being thrown into. So there's the Roaring River. A woman that was a fish is another sigil-based metaphor, this time for Catelyn of House Tully. And now her resurrection is hinted at as she drifts with her red tears from her self-inflicted scratching before waking up. And by the way, check out our Catelyn episode for a large section on both the Red Wedding and Lady Stoneheart. But anyway, a great clue about what was to come. 
So, when we next meet the ghost, she confirms that she'd correctly predicted the demise of the Kraken King, as she puts it. Then we get another set of prophecies. I dreamt a wolf howling in the rain, but no one heard his grief. And I dreamt such a clangor I thought my head might burst, drums and horns and pipes and screams. But the saddest sound was the little bells. Yeah, more Red Wedding hints. The wolf howling in the rain that no one can hear is a great fit with grey wind as he was locked out of the Red Wedding. Perhaps a crucial mistake for Rob. And this pairs with the ghost dream of a very loud event. At the Red Wedding, Cat notices the musicians in the main hall weren't very good. Turns out that's because they weren't really musicians, but crossbowmen poised to attack. This loud, confusing noise they were making is noted several times by Cat as she starts to detect a little bit too late that there was something amiss. Yeah, and the ghost thinks the bells, which symbolize the death of Jingle Bell Frey, were the saddest sound, pairing this with her waking in terror after seeing Cat's resurrection, and we can guess Lady Stoneheart might end up being a character who takes her vengeance too far. Okay, and next... I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs. So we've had the red wedding, and this seems to be the purple wedding. Dantos gave Sansa the poisoned purple hairnet, and it seems to have been used to kill Joffrey. And finally there's this. And later I dreamt that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. So we have Sansa again this time slaying a savage giant in a castle made of snow. We've talked about this in our Sansa episode, and we will talk about it again in a lot more detail when we cover Littlefinger. In summary, there's two main schools of thoughts for this one. The first is that we see this resolved in Sansa's snow castle scene when she pulls Sweet Robin's doll's head off when she's in the snow winterfell that she's constructed. This, on the face of it, seems like a very good fit. However, there's another school of thought that this is actually a red herring from George, or even another layer of foreshadowing, and that what's actually being seen here is something that's not yet come to fruition, the demise of Peter Baelish at the hands of Sansa Stark. Remember that House Baelish's original sigil was the head of the Titan of Bravos, and the Titan of Bravos is noted to be a giant, and that little finger making a move for Winterfell might be in the cards. We go with this notion, and we'll discuss why in more detail in our upcoming Littlefinger episode. Anyway, there are the prophecies from the dreaming mind of the Ghost of High Heart, or from the old gods as she says. We like these prophecies because, for the most part, they're very difficult to solve before the fact, and very straightforward and fair afterwards. And we think that's indicative of good writing and a well-measured use of prophecy as a literary device. But we're not quite done with the Ghost of High Heart yet. Let's take a look at who this mysterious prophetic dwarf is, or who she might be. First of all, it seems pretty clear that she's the woods witch that made the prince that was promised prophecy. Barristan gives this description. She came to court with Jenny of Oldstones, a stunted thing, grotesque to look upon, a dwarf, most people said, though dear to Lady Jenny, who always claimed that she was one of the children of the forest. 
Okay, so the description is very similar to the ghosts. There's the prophetic ability, and both the woods witch and the ghost are close to a Jenny. The ghost mentions she was at Summerhall, and Barristan assumes the woods witch died there. So, very, very likely, they are the same person. And this would mean the Ghost of High Heart is a character of huge importance to the overall story. Her words profoundly affected the Targaryens. Jaehaerys, Ares, Rhaella, Rhaegar and Aemon have all been greatly affected by the prince that was promised prophecy. Yeah, and also being at Summerhall... Given her abilities were being held in high regard by the Targaryens, it's no wonder readers are wondering about the ghost of Highheart and whether she had some kind of indirect influence at the tragedy of Summerhall. And one thing that sticks out about Barristan's description is that Jenny claimed she was a child of the forest because we know that Arya wonders the same thing. Given her description, it's interesting. So let's take a look at if the ghost of Highheart could be one of the children of the forest. Okay, so she's very small, even for a dwarf, so this would fit. Some of the children have red eyes, too, and there's these magical abilities which some of the children have. We think she's having green dreams, another fit. She resides at High Heart and mentions the tree stumps. High Heart is a place sacred to the children of the forest. Andal slaughtered children there and cut down the weirwoods, so there's a lot in favor of the ghost being of that race. However, when we look at the descriptions of the children, things don't quite match up. Despite the strong similarities, there's huge differences. Here's a description of a child of the forest. They were small compared to men, as a wolf is smaller than a direwolf. They had nut-brown skin, dappled like a deer's with paler spots, and large ears that could hear things that no man could hear. Their eyes were too big, Great golden cat's eyes that could see down passages where a boy's eyes saw only blackness. Their hands had only three fingers and a thumb with sharp black claws instead of nails. Okay, so there's no mention of these large ears with the ghost of High Heart and three-fingered hands with claws and so on, so she can't be a child of the forest. But the links to the children are so strong, we're in agreement with the idea floating around, and we've seen Elio and Linda talk about this as well, that she might be a hybrid, half-human, half-child of the forest. Her appearance really does seem to be a mix of the two. Yeah, we think men and children of the forest have bred before, historically, which might have been what gave first men their wagging abilities. And so that might have happened here. It's also interesting that she's an albino. The albinos in this story are a really curious bunch. You have the ghost of High Heart, Ghost, Blood Raven, and also Weirwoods and Melisandre have that striking white and red combination too. Yes, an interesting bunch, we think you'll agree, and hopefully there's a lot there for you listeners to chew on. So that's our look at the Ghost of High Heart, a very mysterious character, a good way for the Brotherhood Without Banners to obtain knowledge of what's to come, and so a prophet held in high regard by characters and readers both. And coming up next is Azor High and the Prince That Was Promised.
In ancient books of Ashai, it is written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it shall be Azorahai come again, and the darkness shall flee before him. She lifted her voice, so it carried out over the gathered host. Azorahai, beloved of Relor, the warrior of light, the son of fire. Okay, now let's look at some of the central prophecies in the books. Azorahai and the prince that was promised. Azorahai is first mentioned by Mel. It seems she's come to Westeros in search of Azorahai reborn, so she might somehow aid him in a quest against the darkness. And she's the only person looking for Azorahai in Westeros. And she thinks she's found him. On Dragonstone, as the idols of the Seven are burnt and Stannis is about to pull a flaming sword from the mother, Mel says, In ancient books of Ashai, it is written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it shall be Azorahai come again and the darkness shall flee before him. So, things to note about Azorahai. He seems to be a prophesied warrior who will fight against darkness, and that he will fight with a burning sword. In Mel's mind, at least, Azorahai reborn seems to be a saviour figure against an upcoming Others invasion. Stannis claims the sword, and soon Davos casts doubt onto the authenticity of this supposed lightbringer. He notices the sword is badly burnt and thinks, the red sword of heroes looks a proper mess. <laughs> yeah, and surely a real lightbringer would be able to withstand heat and make its own fire, much like a glass candle. Stannis' sword later appears, looking more authentic, very bright and colourful, yet Aemon notes that it doesn't give off heat and says it's a glamour. Remembering Kat's observation in Clash that there's a ruby in the pommel, it seems clear that Mel is desperate for an Azora High to get behind. And later on in Clash, as Davos is relaying his doubts about Lightbringer to Salador's son, the old pirate tells Davos about the forging of the original Lightbringer. We covered Lightbringer in The Last Long Night in our Long Night episode, so we won't go into too much detail. But the original Azor Ahai was desperate in the face of darkness and tried to make a new kind of blade. He first tempered it with water, then through the heart of a lion, both of which failed. Finally, he thrust it through his wife's heart in what seems like a blood magic ritual and willing sacrifice. Nissa Nissa's blood, soul, strength, and courage all went into the sword. It seems the blade burst into flame, so Lightbringer was forged, and the blade was now invaluable in the battle against the darkness. And we want to focus here on Azorahai reborn, but it's good to know the background of the previous Azorahai. And the next discussion of Azorahai reborn is in Storm, when Mel is trying to convince Davos that Stannis is, quote, the Lord's Chosen. 
Now Mel seems to be reciting something she might have read in a shy. She says, It is written in prophecy as well. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azura High shall be born again amidst smoke and salt to wake dragons out of stone. Okay, so more about the rebirth of Azura High. Previously, we had stars bleeding, and this time it's a singular red star bleeding. There's a mention of waking stone dragons, and we also get born again amidst smoke and salt. And Mel interprets the star and smoke and salt to be the comet and dragonstone, respectively. Although John later thinks that Stannis wasn't actually born on dragonstone. So it seems very clear, to the reader at least, that Stannis is a red herring here. In story, though, Mel continues to tout Stannis, showing her typical black-and-white misguided thinking, giving us another example of misinterpreted prophecy shaping the story. It's worth mentioning that Mel uses the term the prince that was promised interchangeably with Azor Ahai, and we'll talk about that later. She also says the Azor Ahai prophecy is 5,000 years old. And further into Storm, Mel mentions a king's blood. Only a king's blood can wake the stone dragon. Yes, so this seems to refer to some knowledge of Azor Ahai Reborn that Mel has. And now the stone dragon is singularized. Both Bleeding Star and Starza and Stone Dragon and Dragons appear in both plural and singular form. The problem with the singular and plurals is very confusing, and we guess that the reader just has to decide whether there are one or several of those themselves. And also, King's Blood seems to be in the mix with the Zora High here, so we see how tricky this one's getting. And into dance, we get this line. It comes from the Queen's Men, so we can guess it originated with Melisandre. Two kings to wake the dragon. The father first, and then the son, so both die kings. And this might be pertinent to the Azor High prophecies, although never stated as such, it does have the feel of the prophecy, with the mention of waking a dragon. And further on in Dance, John reads some of the Jade Compendium about Azor High with his flaming sword, melting a monster, and Clydus remarks that a sword that makes its own heat would be a fine thing at the wall. And in Essos, we learn in a Tyrion point of view that the Red Priest Benero is championing Danny as Azor Ahai reborn. It says, Benero has sent forth word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt was she born to make the world anew. She is Azor Ahai returned, and her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end. Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. So whether it's Danny or not, this is interesting information on Azor Ahai reborn. Again, the salt and smoke, but it seems like followers of R'hllor believe an eternal summer is on its way, which doesn't exactly sound healthy. And the line about making the world anew has shades of Ragnarok. And all those who die fighting in a cause shall be reborn also sounds somewhat ominous. Now, overall, Azor High Reborn is a huge and central prophecy. It does seem very important with the looming threat of the others soon to take center stage, 
and there are many interpretations in the fandom as to who Azor Ahai Reborn will be and what that will mean for the story. There will also continue to be characters in story choosing the wrong candidate, which will greatly impact the narrative. Anyway, the two main contenders are Danny and John, and the fandom seems quite divided here. There are also people shouting for many of the characters, from Jamie to Jorah and Moonboy too, for all we know. George has made multiple characters fit some aspects of the prophecies, and we think this is to create red herrings, one of the rudiments of mystery writing. Some people believe that Azura High Reborn will be a saviour figure, and some think there won't be one, or that there will be multiples. So the fandom has all bases covered, but as we said, the main focus is on Danny and John, who we think have the strongest cases by far. So we're going to look at those. Okay, so we'd say that on paper, and at this point in time, Danny has the strongest case. There was the red star bleeding in the comet, appearing around the time she stepped into the fire. She woke dragons from stone, and she was born on Dragonstone, a place of salt and smoke. These all fit very well, and George has obviously done that intentionally. King's blood is said to wake the dragon, and that might fit Cal Drogo, as his body was on the pyre with the dragon's eggs. But it also takes two kings to die to wake the dragon, first the father and then the son. This is somewhat problematic, because Rago died before Drogo. But overall, Danny is fitting the prophecies. If not perfectly, then better than anyone else at this moment in time. And Eamon believes that she's the princess that was promised which he seems to equate to Azora High Reborn. And Benero, as we said, is now championing her in Volantis. However, the big question with Danny as a candidate is if she's a red herring. As we're exploring today, prophecies are used by George as kind of puzzles, and some fans wonder if such a central prophecy, ancient and from a different culture, would be resolved as easily as this. It's also curious that the prophecy would be resolved in-game, even before we learn of it in Clash and Storm. So there's suspicion about how straightforward these interpretations are, as we know how George likes to trick us. Yeah, and with Danny, Lightbringer would be the dragons, the fiery sword being a metaphor. Again, it fits well. However, the legend of Lightbringer then doesn't make a lot of sense, and lots of people think the original Azor Ahai fought with a literal flaming sword. And Danny facing off against the others does seem like a good bet a lot further on in the story, but at the present time, she's probably not going to arrive in that area for a good while. So there's the pros and cons for Danny as a candidate. And this issue is something so contentious, we think it's best to make up your own mind. Okay, now let's look at Jon Snow. At this point in time, he has the weaker argument, but that could all change. Earlier in the books, there wasn't much to go on with Jon, yet in dance, he really became a contender. Like Danny, he's a major character, and he's positioned well to fight the others. And in dance, Jon has a strange dream that really has the feel of a prophetic one. Remembering Targaryen dragon dreams don't have to be about dragons, just prophetic. It says, John was armoured in black ice, but his blade 
burned red in his fist. Hmm, so a burning blade. But remember, this is after he'd read about Azora High in the Jade Compendium. Still, extremely interesting that George is bringing John in as a contender so late in the story, and possibly close to a reveal. Next, we have Melisandre looking for Azor Ahai, who she thinks is Stannis, in her flames. And the flames show her only snow. This happens a couple of times, but the third time is the most interesting. Yeah, I pray for a glimpse of Azor Ahai, and R'hllor shows me only snow. This time, the S on snow is capitalized. And so fans wonder why there's an allusion to Jon Snow when she's asking the flames for a glimpse of Azora High. Finally in dance, Jon is stabbed. And as others do, we think he'll be reborn. So if certain prophecies come to pass when that happens, we might well have our Azora High reborn. And John is well-placed for a war against the others and has had the leadership theme throughout his arc, which must be headed somewhere. He's very likely to have an ice and fire secret heritage, which marks him as a character of major importance in this Song of Ice and Fire. In our Long Night episode, we argued that the original Lightbringer was Dawn, and that seems like a possibility for the new Lightbringer, too. Although how it would get to him, we don't know at this time. But anyway, with John, the common idea is that Lightbringer would be a literal sword. Okay, so let's look at the prophecies. With John, prophecies don't seem to fit like with Danny at this point in time. People point to his smoking wound and the tears of Bowen Marsh at his stabbing. But the prophecies should come into fruition when Azor Ahai is reborn, not when he's being killed. However, we wonder about John's potential rebirth if they could come true then, in a way the reader doesn't expect, as George has said he likes to do this. Second-guessing George, then, is extremely difficult if this is the case. So perhaps John, not quite fitting the prophecies at this stage, is exactly what we should expect. They might be near impossible to call at this point in time, but let's give some ideas just for the heck of it, and we have some crackpot ones. So, as we did with the stallion who mounts the world, let's consider who made the prophecy. Vitally important, we think. Azorahide prophecies seem to come from Ashai, and it's 5,000 years ago, so inhabitants were likely from the surrounding areas. And I read an idea at Westeros.org a while ago that wondered if the Ashai had ever seen snow, with the place being so far south. Around 46% of people in our own world haven't seen snowfall in person. So if the prophet who made this smoke and salt prophecy had a vision of someone being resurrected amidst snow, what would they call the snow if they didn't know what it was? Perhaps they would describe it as salt, being white and so on. So if John is resurrected by Mel and there's smoke from her fires and it's snowing, that could be the salt and smoke, a misinterpretation from the source. And some fans wonder if John's body will be stored in the Night's Watch food cellar with the salt and smoke of the preservatives there. There's also an idea that John, if he's a Targaryen, could be a dragon about to be awoken, although what the stone would be in that case is a mystery. Some fans think this relates to his potential RLJ identity. 
And for the bleeding star, some fans wonder about Sir Patrick's star sigil being splattered by blood by Wunwun. Although there's indication George included this as an insider's joke about an American football bet with a friend. And we wondered in our Mel episode if Mel could be the daughter of Cher a Sea Star, which would make Mel a red star. She does bleed spontaneously, so if that happens again, if John's reborn and crying blood might be fitting, she could then be a red star bleeding. Yeah, Mel is associated with red stars. Her eyes are described as two red stars, and her necklaces too. So another alternate theory on the prophecies. Then there's King's blood to wake the dragon. Well, rather than blood actually being used in the sense of a sacrifice, it could just refer to a relative of a king. If Bran helps to resurrect John, then he could be King's blood waking a dragon, remembering that blood can mean relation in the books. Bran is a brother to King Rob, and there's a chance that John could have been born a king. And then there's two kings dying to wake the dragon. First the father, then the son, so both die kings. The only way we can see a king with a son being near John is if Tormund becomes the wildling king. We're told that if Mance hadn't been their king, it would have been Tormund, and we think there's a few hints that Tormund might become king of the wildlings in the Winds of Winter, so it's not impossible. But if Tormund was to die, Toreg wouldn't become king, a requisite of the prophecy. However, in Dance, the Queen's men don't understand the wildling laws of inheritance calling Val a princess, so we guess it's possible that the ancient Ashai prophets might have made the same mistake. But overall, this two kings prophecy is very difficult to attribute to John. And we can't forget that these prophecies could refer to things that happened around John's actual birth, with many possibilities for alternate interpretations having been put forward by fans, from Arthur Dane being the bleeding star and smoke from the possible burning of the Tower of Joy and salt from Ned's tears to the two kings being Ares and Aegon. But overall, fitting the prophecies to John in general is definitely a tough task, and you can see from these ideas that they are far, far less straightforward than some of the examples with Danny. This need for complicated explanations puts some people off. But like we said, these prophecies could come true in ways we just don't expect and can't foresee. George is a very smart writer, and so predicting what he might write might be impossible. So all eyes will be on the potential rebirth scene to see if George does something unexpected there. Anyway, there's the case for and against John, and we can see that the prophecies might be a tough fit right now, but let's just see what happens. And fans are generally divided between Danny and John. And to give our call, despite the problems, we both think that it will be John with Don as Lightbringer. Still, that doesn't mean we think he's any more important to the overall story than Danny. We don't really have any bias, and at this point, we don't know if Azor High will ultimately be a good thing to be, a bad thing, or something in between. Yeah, we would guess, if there is a saviour figure, that it will bring much trademark greyness, and we can't see a hero not getting his or her hands quite dirty. And speaking of supposed saviour figures... There's another in the story, 
The Prince That Was Promised. You are he who must stand against the other, the one whose coming was prophesied 5,000 years ago. The Red Comet was your herald. You are the prince that was promised. And if you fail, the world fails with you. Okay, so the prince that was promised was first mentioned in the House of the Undying. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire, says Rhaegar, talking about baby Aegon. And next we see Mel equate it to Azura High numerous times, so she thinks that they're the same. And in Storm, Arstan tells Danny that Prince Rhaegar one day read something in the scrolls, and it changed him making him say to the master-at-arms, I will require sword and armor. It seems I must be a warrior. So this seems like it could pertain to the prince that was promised prophecy. And in Feast, we get this from Aemon. No one ever looked for a girl. It was a prince that was promised, not a princess. Rhaegar, I thought. The smoke was from the fire that devoured Summerhall on the day of his birth. The salt from the tears shed for those who died. He shared my belief when he was young, but later he became persuaded that it was his own son who fulfilled the prophecy, for a comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night Aegon was conceived, and Rhaegar was certain the bleeding star had to be a comet. What fools we were, who thought ourselves so wise. The error crept in from the translation. Dragons are neither male nor female. Bath saw the truth that, but now one and now the other, as changeable as flame. The language misled us all for a thousand years. Daenerys is the one, born amidst salt and smoke. The dragons prove it. So Aemon thinks Danny is the princess that was promised, and notice how he's mixing the smoke and salt, which is in the Azor High prophecy, with the prince that was promised. They clearly amount to the same thing to Aemon, and we would guess to other Targaryens who've wondered about the prince. And in Dance, Baristan tells Danny that a woodswitch has prophesied that the prince that was promised would come from the Ares Rhaella line. Therefore, just like with Azor High, the two main candidates are Danny and John. Okay, so Danny, from the Ares Rayala line, check. Princess, check. Eamon explained about the possible error in translation, so her gender's not an issue. However, she doesn't fit the line about his is the song of ice and fire so well. We guess it could pertain to something concerning the dragons and the others, although she does seem more imbalanced towards fire and no association to ice. And then there's John. Assuming RLJ, he's of the Ares Rhaella line. Prince might indicate Rhaegar and Lyanna married, although perhaps the term can be used loosely. The line, his is a song of ice and fire, fits very well if John is half Stark and half Targaryen. John also can be linked to a promise, Lyanna's promise that haunted Ned so much. Okay, so there's the cases for Danny and John. Now let's consider if Azor High is the same person, as that surely has a bearing on who everyone thinks the prince or princess will be. First of all, there's Mel using the terms interchangeably. 
Mel, of course, is fallible, although she's also studied prophecy in Ashai. And then we get to Avon, mixing the Azura High prophecy with the prince that was promised. He obviously equates them as well. Notice that Rhaegar asked for a sword and armour after reading the scrolls, wanting to become a warrior, which we think has shades of Azura High. So what might be happening, given Azura High prophecy comes from Ashai and the prince prophecy must be Valyrian, we think this is the same figure foretold by different cultures through two different cultural lenses. And so they have different names for this person. In the world book, we can see the exact same thing happened with the original Azura High. Here's a quote. How long the darkness endured, no man can say, but all agree that it was only when a great warrior, known variously as Hercun the Hero, Azorahai, Yintar, Neferion, and Eldric Shadowchaser, arose to give courage to the race of men and lead the virtuous into battle with his blazing sword Lightbringer, that the darkness was put to rout and light and love returned once more to the world. So there's Azura High seeming to have five different names, and perhaps in the current story he's got two. Given we think Jon Snow will be Azura High, again we'll go for him to be the prince that was promised, because we think they're the same thing. But lots of people will again go for Danny or say that Azura High and the Prince will be different people. So we look forward to the Winds of Winter to see if there's any answers or just more questions. And now it's time to take a look at Nissa Nissa. She did this thing, why I cannot say, and Azura High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Okay, Nissa Nissa. If the Legend of Lightbringer tale is to play out again, Nissa Nissa could be as important to the equation as Azor High. Someone who sacrifices themselves so Azor High can prosper against the darkness. And again we'll be looking at Danny and John. So Danny's Nissa is quite straightforward, bearing in mind the idea that the dragon's a lightbringer. She put the body of Carl Drogo, who she'd smothered, on the funeral pyre, facilitating the birth of the dragons. In this way, Drogo helped to birth the dragons, although as a sacrifice, it seems to us all very indirect and hard to align with the original tale. In fact, it has little in common. On the flip side, Danny named a dragon Drogon, and there's a sense Drogo's spirit might have entered the dragon, remembering Nissa Nissa effectively became Lightbringer. But now on to John. The ideas in the fandom are that it could be Val, as there's some attraction between the two, while some people think Arya and others think Danny. However, we want to look at someone a lot closer to John at this moment in time, Melisandre of Ashai. Mel is a character who was initially peripheral and who's slowly grown in importance to the point of gaining a POV in dance. George describes her as his most misunderstood character, and she is central to the Azorahai theme in the books. 
And Mel might seem like an odd choice for Nissa Nissa, but we think there's a good case to be made. First of all, we think there's a subtle link to Mel and Nissa in the Legend of Lightbringer tale. It's said that when Nissa was stabbed, she let out, quote, a cry of anguish and ecstasy. And only one person feels anything like this in the books, Mel, and it happens twice. When she births a shadow in Clash, we get, Blood ran down her thighs, black as ink. Her cry might have been agony or ecstasy or both. And then in Dance, we get, Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. So both times Mel is bleeding and she feels this distinctive agony and ecstasy very similar to Nissa Nissa. And notice that on the second occasion it says the fire was inside her, which we think is very Nissa-esque. It's also noted in Dance that Nissa was warm. And in the same book, we learn of Mel's inherent warmth and ability to melt ice and so on. And Mel can also be linked with a blade in the heart. Yeah, Davos ponders killing Mel and wonders if, quote, a knife in the heart will do the job. So the idea of Mel taking a blade to the heart is floated there in Storm. Also, Nyssa had a fiery heart, and there's a very strong association with Mel here. She adds the fiery heart to Stannis' sigil. So you could say the fiery heart is her sigil. And it's true that Mel's fiery heart is influenced by the Nyssa tale. But this could be a great way to hide her in plain sight as Nyssa Nyssa. As if George could be waving a great fiery heart banner right at us. And hiding in plain sight is obviously a hallmark of good mystery writing. Yeah, Mel's association with the fiery heart runs deep. She asks numerous people if they have burning hearts. It's interesting to note that we don't see the fiery heart symbol in Volantis. It seems to be exclusive to Mel and those she influences. And we also think that Mel would be the most suited character to being Nissa Nissa. She is devout to the Azor High prophecy and seems absolutely genuine in her conviction. She has a strong theme of sacrifice in her arc, burning or trying to burn numerous people as sacrifices. The question arises, if Mel was called on to sacrifice herself for Azor High, would she have the courage of her convictions? And we think that she definitely would, and that being a willing sacrifice to inflame Lightbringer would be a very appropriate end to Mel's arc, more so than with any other character. So if John turns out to be Azor Ahai reborn, Melisandre is our candidate for Nissa Nissa. She's in the right place, and her relationship with John is only going to strengthen when the others arrive. Those two will be on the front line, and we don't think Mel came all the way from Ashai to mess around when that happens. In the Lightbringer tale, Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa are husband and wife, but we don't think that dynamic is necessarily a requisite. Although we do see John and Mel getting closer in some way, just out of necessity, maybe, as they team up to drive back the darkness. And you have to bear in mind that John might also be very thankful if Mel resurrects him, and he might also be changed in some way. Yes, yeah, so we think Mel for Nissa Nissa. And okay, that's it for our look at Azor Ahai Reborn, the prince that was promised and Nissa. 
And now it's time for a song from the fandom. At the time of recording, we're all still waiting for an announcement about the Winds of Winter release date, but the feeling is that it might not be too far away. Our featured band faced a similar five-year wait between Feast and Dance and wrote a song, pleading with George to release a new book. So here's Dinosaur Feathers with Please Please George.
Dinosaur Feathers with their excellent song, Please Please George. The song's on Bandcamp, and we'll link to it via our website at RadioWesteros.com. And thanks to Dinosaur Feathers for allowing us to play it here. And I think we can all relate to that yearning for a new book. Yes, we can. And now it's time to look at more mysterious characters. Okay, so the Azura High prophecy has got a lot of fans excited about who this prophesied figure will turn out to be. But as we said, in universe, the prophecy will drive characters to choose their own Azura High, and so it will likely have a dramatic effect on the plot. Now we're going to look at someone who seems both interested in prophecy and rather sceptical, Marwin the Mage. And he doesn't actually make any prophecies himself, but we really wanted to cover him, so we thought we'd do it here. Right, so Marwin is a maester, or an archmaester, although an unconventional one. Let's start with descriptions of this intriguing character. In Feast, we briefly meet the man when Sam arrives at the Citadel. Here's the description. Marwin wore a chain of many metals around his bull's neck. Save for that, he looked more like a dockside thug than a maester. His head was too big for his body, and the way it thrust forward from his shoulders, together with that slab of jaw, made him look as if he were about to tear off someone's head. Though short and squat, he was heavy in the chest and shoulders, with a round, rock-hard ale belly straining at the laces of the leather jerkin he wore in place of robes. Bristly white hair sprouted from his ears and nostrils. His brow beetled, his nose had been broken more than once, and Sourleaf had stained his teeth a mottled red. He had the biggest hands that Sam had ever seen. Okay, so not your typical maester there. Marwin seems to resemble a retired prize fighter. He couldn't be more different in appearance to maesters like Lewin and Pycelle. And let's look at Marwin in the story so far. He's actually first mentioned by Miri Mazdur in A Game of Thrones. It says, When I was younger and more fair, I went in caravan to a shy by the shadow to learn from their mages. Ships from many lands come to a shy, so I lingered long to study the healing ways of distant peoples. A moon singer of the Jogos Nai gifted me with her birthing songs. A woman of your own riding people taught me the magics of grass and corn and horse, and a maester from the sunset lands opened a body for me and showed me all the secrets that hide beneath the skin. And Mary goes on to name the maester as Marwyn. Then the world book gives an account that Marwyn made of Ashai, and altogether it seems clear enough that Marwyn met Mary in Ashai, which is relevant to something we're going to speculate on later. Anyway, we think it's interesting that he came up like that in-game, which might hint that he's a minor character that we should look out for. And it's not until A Storm of Swords that we get our next mention of Marwyn when he's mentioned by Kyburn, who's discussing the mysteries of death. And his conviction that a person leaves a part of themselves behind when they die. He says, The Archmaesters did not like my thinking, though. Well, Marwyn did, but he was the only one. So, Kyburn highlights the fact that Marwyn isn't just your usual maester. Later on, he informs the reader that Marwyn calls the other archmaesters the Grey Sheep, so it's interesting how we're being drip-fed this information about the gulf between Marwyn and the rest of the Citadel. 
But it's in Feast where we really get our information on Marwyn. In the prologue, there's rumours at the Citadel of the birth of the dragons, something Marwyn is said to believe in. Armin says, Marwyn is unsound. Archmaester Peristan would be the first to tell you that. Yeah, so more evidence that Marwyn is at odds with the Citadel. And then it says, The mage was not like other maesters. People said that he kept company with whores and hedge wizards, talked with hairy Ebenese and pitch-blacked summer islanders in their own tongues, and sacrificed to queer gods at the little sailors' temples down by the wharves. Men spoke of seeing him down in the undercity, in rat pits and black brothels, consorting with mummers, singers, sellswords, even beggars. Some even whispered that once he had killed a man with his fists. When Marwyn returned to Old Town after spending eight years in the East, mapping distant lands, searching for lost books, and studying with warlocks and shadowbinders, Vinegar Valen had dubbed him Marwyn the Mage. So by now we have a good feel for the man. And the scene ends with the news Marwyn has a glass candle burning in his chambers, which he's apparently lit and is used to see Sam Tarly coming. One thing that strikes us about the glass candle is that we've just been told that he went east and studied with shadow binders. And remember, he's been to a shy on those travels and has a clear interest in the higher mysteries. So we wonder, connecting these dots, if Marwyn has met and has studied with Quaith. She's named as a masked shadowbinder from Ashai in the appendix, and it seems like she's using a glass candle to contact Danny on several occasions. Remember, Danny sees her face as starlight, and there's those strange instances on Balerion and in Marine when Danny can't figure out if she was dreaming Quaith's appearances, and Quaith informs her that she wasn't dreaming. So glass candles seem a good bet. Yeah, it does. And then Marwyn seems to achieve the impossible and lights a glass candle after a trip to Ashai and studying with shadow binders. So we think that there could be a link between Marwyn and Quaith and that they might have been in Ashai at the same time and known each other. It's also interesting to consider with Daenerys in mind that he would have met Miri on the same trip. There's a good chance we can get more of that story when Marwyn meets up with Danny. It will be really interesting to know more about Miri if and when her name comes up in conversation there. Okay, so lots of intrigue surrounding Marwyn, some exciting possibilities, and we'll be talking all about Quaith later on, where the potential relationship between the Shadowbinder and the Mage will come up again. And then in Feast, we also hear about Marwyn's travels from Roderick the Reader. He's reading Marwyn's Book of Lost Books, where Marwyn claims to have found three pages of signs and portents, visions written down by the maiden daughter of Aenar Targaryen before the Doom of Valyria. So Signs and Portents is a collection of the prophetic visions of Daenys the Dreamer. She is the one who prophesied the doom, and so the survival of the Targaryens is due to her, as they acted on her prophecy and fled, settling on Dragonstone. This is a great example of a prophecy coming true, and characters using the prophecy to evade a bad situation. And it also shows that Marwyn has a keen interest in prophecy. 
However, so we meet Marwin in person for the first and only time, and he's not as positive about prophecies as we might expect. Sam informs him that Eamon had believed Danny to be the fulfillment of the prophecy, and Marwin replies, Born amidst salt and smoke, beneath a bleeding star. I know the prophecy. Marwin turned his head and spat a gob of red phlegm onto the floor. Not that I would trust it. Gorgon of Old Geese once wrote that a prophecy is like a treacherous woman. She takes your member in her mouth and you moan with the pleasure of it and think, how sweet, how fine, how good this is. And then her teeth snap shut and your moans turn to screams. That's the nature of prophecy, said Gorgon. Prophecy will bite your prick off every time. He chewed a bit. Still... Yeah, prophecy will bite your cock off every time. It's a great memorable line. However, we don't think Marwin is completely anti-prophecy. All things considered, he's perhaps simply very cautious of mistakes and misinterpretations. And we think that shows some wisdom. It's also worth noting that he knows about the born amidst salt and smoke, bleeding stars, or high prophecy... Anyway, with prophecy and dragons on his mind, Marwyn sets off to sail to Danny. As we said, it could be very interesting if and when those two finally meet. Okay, so we've given our kind of mini-theory that Marwyn might possibly know Quaith. But we also have another theory about the mage. We wonder if he's already met Daenerys. So we're thinking about Robert's Rebellion and where Marwyn was at that time. One thing about the rebellion that George has said, and this is numerous times, is that we'll know everything about it. Here's a quote from his Notter blog. By the time I finish A Song of Ice and Fire, you will know everything there is to know about Robert's rebellion. Hmm, and so how are we going to find out what was going on on Dragonstone? There's some interesting things we should know about, such as Rhaegar's activities leading up to the rebellion, Rhaella arriving, what everyone was thinking when Aerys and Rhaegar's family died, the huge storm that racked the Targaryen fleet, and Danny's birth, Rhaella's death, and the children's subsequent escape. We need eyes and ears on Dragonstone who can bring this information to the story. There's lots of speculation about where Danny went with Sir Willem Darry and Viserys when they escaped, but with both of them dead, we currently have nobody to provide answers. Yes, yeah, so as Lady Gwyn said, we need eyes and ears on Dragonstone. And so we wonder if Marwyn could have been the maester on Dragonstone and possibly an advisor to Rhaegar, with whom he apparently shared a knowledge of prophecy and may have even been the one who delivered Danny. We know that Maester Crescent came to Dragonstone with Stannis, and so who delivered Danny is still a mystery. Presumably it was a maester of some importance, and we think, with his interest in magic and dragons and so on, and with Rhaella in a presumably desperate state after a string of miscarriages and stillbirths, that the Targaryens might have trusted him to deliver Rhaella's child. Yeah, and we know that Marwyn went travelling east for eight years. He might have done that after the fall of the Targaryens, even sailing off from Dragonstone. 
So this theory is quite speculative, but it would give further purpose to Marwin going to Danny. He could provide her with stories about her mother, whom she seems to know very little about, as well as exposition about her escape with Sir Willem and other important information like that. Okay, so that's her idea that Marwin the Mage was the maester on Dragonstone during Robert's Rebellion, and that he might have delivered Danny, and so could be our eyes and ears for some backstory. We just don't see who else in the story could serve this function. Overall, despite being a minor, minor character so far, we think that Marwin could be a very interesting person for Danny to have around. And there's plenty of reasons to be excited about those two meeting. We certainly look forward to getting to know the mage a lot better. So that's our look at Marwin. And up next, we're going to look at Quaith. A woman stood under the persimmon tree, clad in a hooded robe that brushed the grass. Beneath the hood, her face seemed hard and shiny. She's wearing a mask, Danny knew, a wooden mask finished in dark red lacquer. Quaith? Am I dreaming? She pinched her ear and winced at the pain. I dreamt of you on Balerion when we first came to Astapor. You did not dream, then or now. What are you doing here? How did you get past my guards? I came another way. Your guards never saw me. If I call out, they will kill you. They will swear to you that I am not here. Are you here? No. Hear me, Daenerys Targaryen. The glass candles are burning. Soon comes the pale mare, and after her, the others. Kraken and Dark Flame, Lion and Griffin, the Sun's Son and the Mummer's Dragon. Trust none of them. Remember the Undying. Beware the perfumed Seneschal. Okay, so now we're going to look at our final curious character of this episode, and some might argue the most mysterious character of the entire series. Let's look at the enigmatic Quaith. We'll talk through her role in the story, her prophecies, and her identity. So we first meet Quaith in the Clash of Kings, and she is named as a mass shadowbinder of a shy in the appendix of that book. Danny finds herself at the abandoned city of Vase Toloro and sends off her blood riders to find help. Jogo returns with three representatives from Karth Piat Pri, Zaro Zoandaxos, and Quaith. And Piat Pri introduces himself in the Dothraki tongue. Zaro in Valyrian, and Quaith, wearing a red lacquered mask, says, I am Quaith of the Shadow. We come seeking dragons in the common tongue of Westeros. Danny replies, Seek no more. You have found them. So the chapter ends there, and the next time we see Quaith, Danny is in Karth, and Quaith delivers her first warning, telling Danny, Beware! They shall come day and night to see the wonder that has been born again into this world, and when they see, they shall lust. For dragons are fire made flesh, and fire is power. And although Jorah likes her no more than the others, 
He concurs with her words, but Danny finds herself disturbed by the woman's cryptic words and the fact that she hides her face behind that mask. In a later scene in Carth, Danny's watching a fire mage. He conjures up a ladder made of fire that rose unsupported from the floor. He makes the flames grow larger and higher and then runs up the ladder as the fiery rungs vanish behind him. Danny's blood rider, Jogo, pronounced it a fine trick. But a woman in the crowd answered no trick in the common tongue. It says that Danny hadn't noticed Quay standing there, but there she was. And she notes Quay's eyes behind the mask and describes them as wet and shiny, a rare descriptive for Quaith. And when Danny asks what she meant by this being no trick, Quaith replies, Half a year gone, that man could scarcely wake fire from dragonglass. He had some small skill with powders and wildfire, sufficient to entrance a crowd while his cut purses did their work. He could walk across hot coals and make burning roses bloom in the air. But he could no more aspire to climb the fiery ladder than a common fisherman could hope to catch a kraken in his nets. So, Quaid goes on to explain the reason for this increased magic is Danny, because she's the mother of dragons. She gently touches two fingers onto Danny's wrist, which leaves her hand tingling, and then Quaith orders her to leave the city soon, or she'll not be permitted to leave at all. When Danny asks where she should go, Quaith gives a cryptic, seemingly contradictory riddle as an answer. To go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. Yeah, we'll look at this later. Here, Danny interprets this as meaning a shy, where Quay thinks there's some kind of truth. The Shadowbinder bows and disappears into the crowd, and Ricaro, Ago, and Zaro talk of their mistrust of the woman. So, just a small scene there, but lots going on. And that's the last time we hear of Quaith and Clash, and at the end of the book we have a far better grasp of the motives of two of the three representatives Danny met in Veas Toloro. We understand Zaro and Paya, yet Quaith's motives are unknown. We do get the impression that she's trying to help Danny in some way, it's just that her manner is so strange. Yeah, riddles, a clear interest in dragons... Yet underneath that, she was again warning Danny about the dangers of staying in Carth. And whether Quaith is friend or foe is something Danny struggles with, as does the reader. But anyway, Quaith insinuating that the birth of Danny's dragons has increased magic in the world is something supported not long afterwards by Helene the pyromancer in King's Landing, wondering if there are dragons about after a bountiful wildfire harvest. Okay, and now on to Storm. Danny is sleeping on the ship Balerion and wakes to a woman standing over her. It's a mystery who this woman is until she repeats the riddle about going south to go north. When Danny realizes it's Quaith, she springs up and her handmaidens awake. There's no one else in the cabin. Danny puts the experience down to a dream, and being on a ship, there seems no way Quaith could have really been there. And as we said earlier, this seems to have been Quaith using a glass candle, remembering she mentioned waking fire from dragon glass earlier. To recap, here's what Marwyn says about glass candles. 
The sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountains, seas and deserts with one of these candles. They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions and speak to another half a world apart. Now this is the first of three times we think she's using a glass candle with Danny. The next occasion is in dance with Danny asleep in the Great Pyramid of Marine. Danny hears something and finds a woman in a hooded robe with a lacquer mask by the persimmon tree in her courtyard. Danny realizes it's Quaith and says, I dreamt of you on Balerion when we first came to Astapor. Quaith replies that it was not a dream, then or now. Danny wonders how she could have possibly got past her guards, and Quaith answers that she came another way. Quaith adds that Danny is the only person who's able to see her. Then she says that the glass candles are burning and gives another riddle. Soon comes the pale mare, and after her the others. Kraken and Dark Flame, Lion and Griffin, the Sun's Son and the Mummer's Dragon. Trust none of them. Remember the Undying. Beware the perfumed Seneschal. And we'll look at that list shortly, but for now, note that Danny immediately interprets Resnak to be the perfumed Seneschal, and then asks what Quaith wants. She's obviously had enough of these riddles. Quaith replies that she simply wants to show her the way. Danny says she knows the way and recites Quaith's riddle about going south to go north. Quaith tells her to remember the undying, and perhaps most importantly, to remember who she is. As Danny replies, Quaith disappears, and Miss Anday finds Danny effectively talking to herself. And Danny's very confused. Quaith has gone, and she's left to wonder if she's going mad. At one point, she thinks, Dreams and prophecies. Why must they always be in riddles? I hate this. Yes, I agree. (laughs) So Danny is frustrated with prophecies, and that's something most readers can relate to by this point. And the final scene with Quaith comes as Danny is really struggling. She's ill and lost, alone in the Dothraki Sea. Again, she's in a sleepy, dreamy state, and suddenly the stars, quote, wheel around her and whisper secrets in her ear. We get the going north riddle once again. Danny calls out to Quaith, and it says that her mask was made of starlight. The reply is whispered by the stars in a woman's voice. Remember who you are, Daenerys. The dragons know. Do you? And Danny awakes the next day, and that's the last of Quaith in the books. The reader, like Danny, still can't be sure if she's a friend, foe, or something in between. So now let's take a look at Quaith's riddles. Here's this one. To go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. And this is a really interesting one. It's repeated several times. Quaith wants Danny to remember this. And it's exciting in as much as it could be the key to understanding Danny's path later in the story. To go north, you must go south is really difficult. Could it simply mean she has to take the southerly ocean route to Westeros? Or could it have something to do with the north and south of Westeros? And then there's to reach the west, you must go east. We wonder if Danny is going to face Dothrak before Westeros, which could possibly fulfil going back to go forward, or 
going east to reach the west. Not to mention that her entire arc seems to have been a more or less eastward journey, a precursor to her eventual westward trip to Westeros, so that's a possibility. And for to touch the light you must pass beneath the shadow, some fans wonder along with Danny if this means that to gain knowledge she must travel to Ashai. But George has said that we'll only see Ashai in flashbacks. So we wonder if the shadow could be the wall. I have no idea what the light would be in that case, but it does seem like the wall must cast the largest shadow in Westeros, and if Danny was to eventually face the others, she might need to go under it. Yes, so there's some ideas at least, but really we can't say we're overly confident. Perhaps it's not yet possible to solve the riddle at this point in the story, but the next one is a lot easier, we think. Soon comes the pale mare, and after her the others. Kraken and Dark Flame, Lion and Griffin, the Sun's Son and the Mummer's Dragon. Trust none of them, remember the Undying. Beware the perfumed Seneschal. Okay, so as we know, the pale mare did come. And we think the rest of the list are the people who were going to Danny. So the Kraken would be Victarion, the Dark Flame, Makoro, the Lion, Tyrion, the Griffin, John Connington, the Sun's Son, Quentin, and the Mummer's Dragon, Aegon, if the Blackfire theory is correct. And fans do point out that not all of these people ended up travelling to Danny. John Connington and Aegon changed course. Our answer is that all of these people were travelling to Danny when this prediction was made. Rather than being a prophecy, we wonder if this was a glass candle reading. Quaif saw all of these people on their way to Danny in real time. So, that's what we think. This list of people was seen via a glass candle, explaining why two of them didn't make it. And one interesting observation we've seen on the forums is that Unless the perfumed seneschal is Marwyn, and there doesn't seem to be any link between Marwyn and perfume, then he's the only person traveling to Danny who isn't on the list. Could it be that Quaith trusts Marwyn? This is intriguing, and we did say in our last segment that there could be a link between Marwyn and Quaith. Yeah, one of our many crackpots today. And finally, let's look at this perfumed seneschal. Danny thinks about Reznak immediately, so I think we can guess that it's not going to be him and he's a red herring. And we find out via Tyrion that the translation for the Selasori Koran, the ship that Tyrion and Mokoro were on, is Fragrant Steward, which sounds a lot like a perfumed seneschal. Yeah, now that's an interesting one. However, we wonder if that could be another red herring. If we had to guess, and it is a difficult one, we'd say the perfumed seneschal might end up being Varys. The way Quaith gives a list of untrustworthy people, then at the end emphasizes not to trust the perfumed seneschal, makes us think this will be someone of major importance. Given we believe the Aegon is a Blackfire theory, Varys might be, in one way or another, a formidable foe for Danny and he's both perfumed and a seneschal. Yeah, so it's a tough call at this stage, but I think we would go for Varys. That's our guess anyway. So that's our thoughts on Quaif's prophecies. 
Next, we're going to look at who Quaith actually is. So, our first hint that Quaith might be from Westeros comes from the first time we meet her. Pyapri talks in Dothraki, Zaro in Valyrian, and Quaith talks in the common tongue of Westeros. And add to this that she's from Ashai. In the world book, we learn that there are no children in Ashai, so anyone who's from there was from somewhere else originally. Plus, in Quaith's riddle, she's used Westerosi sigils, such as lion and kraken. This might show familiarity with Westerosi noble houses and their sigils. So, three clues there that Quaith might originally be from Westeros. And there's also the lacquer mask. While Shadowbinders might wear these, we wonder if George made it like that because he didn't want Danny or the reader to see Quaith's face. The mask seems very convenient. Yeah, and so there's enough cause to wonder, who is Quaith? The first thing to say is that any theory on her identity is going to be crackpot tinfoil. Quaith is seldom in the books, and there's just not that much to go on, so there must be some leaps of faith. But it's still fun to speculate. And there's two schools of thought in the fandom, basically. One is that Quaith is Cher a sea star, and the other is that she's a Sharadain. Both are equally as interesting as they are problematic, but we wonder about someone with more cause to be interested in Danny, her mother, Rayella Targaryen. Yeah, as far as we know, there's never been a theory on Quaith being Rayella before, so here it is. Sometimes in mystery writing, when you're trying to solve a mystery and you're really stumped, it's wise to do two things. Number one, expect the unexpected, so look at characters who seem unlikely and anticipate a future twist. Number two, look at the character with the biggest literary payoff. And we think Quaith, being Danny's mother, would be a huge and unexpected twist. Quaith knowing who Danny is makes sense to us, and this would be the reveal of all reveals. Yes, it would. It would answer the question of why Quaith is so interested in Danny, and it would also explain why George has made sure we never see her face. It might be a lot like Danny's. In the House of the Undying, Danny sees almost her entire dead family Ares, Rhaegar, Viserys, Rhaego, even people like Elia, Aegon, and Willem Derry. Despite there being a daughter of death triad, Danny's mother Rhaella is notably absent. Almost like she's not actually dead. In fact, we know next to nothing about Rayella or what was happening on Dragonstone during the rebellion and the fall of House Targaryen. So what if Rayella was stuck on Dragonstone, hearing of the demise of her house, and she needed an escape? The prince that was promised has been prophesied to be of her line, and we know Rhaegar thought it was himself and then baby Aegon. So what must Ryella have been thinking when she heard news of Rhaegar's and Aegon's deaths? Knowing that she would give birth to a child on Dragonstone amidst smoke and salt, she would have surely realised the prince that was promised must either be young Viserys or unborn Danny, given she didn't know about Jon. So, what if Rayella decided the best way to help her prophesied prince or princess was to set off to Ashai to seek the truth that Quaith mentioned? To study scrolls and learn how to help her child. 
and since there's no children in Ashai, she left her own in the care of Willem Derry. And the obvious problem here is that we're told Ryella died in childbirth, although nobody alive in the story was around that we know of. Death in childbirth usually kills any crackpots because we assume it's so definite, unlike, say, jumping off a tower and leaving no corpse behind. However, faking one's death in childbirth could be the perfect cover in a mystery as nobody would question it. It could be the ideal way for a writer to hide a disappearance and would have ensured she wasn't followed. Well, we think that given George's repeated and beloved device of characters being alive that were thought dead, this isn't beyond what he could pull off. Riella would need a huge distraction around Danny's birth and a complicit maester. And while there was a giant storm, it sunk the Targaryen fleet around the time of Danny's birth, which was a heck of a distraction, and we've wondered previously if Marwyn was the maester on Dragonstone. But anyway, despite seeming far-fetched, we think George could have Rayella escape Dragonstone if he wanted to, and we do think that whoever Quaith is, she'll seem a very unlikely candidate at the present time. One other thing, Quaife's eyes are noted to be wet and shiny when meeting Danny and Carth. Sounds like she might have been a bit tearful at that moment. Along those lines, we do sometimes detect something maternal about Quaife. When Danny's lost and lonely in the Dothraki Sea, it's Quaife who visits her and tells her to remember who she is. Okay, so that's our fresh crackpot on Quaith, that she might be Danny's mother, Rhaella Targaryen, returning to her daughter with the knowledge of future events learned in a shy and seeking to guide her. This one is a hard sell, we realize, and like any Quaith theory, it's not without its shared problems, but we think there's a certain logic to it, and what appeals to us is the strength of the possible reveal. Remember that Bran saw dragons stirring in Ashai in his coma dream, so given the tendency for dreams to be non-literal, and that we've been shown many times dragons in dreams representing Targaryens, we wonder if Rhaella was one of those stirring dragons in Ashai. Yeah, we do. We hope you appreciate a new idea on the subject. And I've got to say it's been really great fun sharing our crackpots with you listeners today. But no matter who Quaith really is, we think she's well-placed to make a large impact on the story, especially relative to the size of her role. She affects Danny and enters her decision-making process, much the same as the prophecies of the Undying have. Quaith shows no signs of ambition and her motives seem as obscure as her riddles, so it will be really interesting to see if and how she guides Danny in the winds of winter. And that was our look at prophecies and the prophets of A Song of Ice and Fire. Hopefully we've given you listeners some things to think about regarding some of these confusing mysteries, and thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with a look at Jura Mormont, and we hope you'll join us for that. Now, as usual, it's time to give credit where credit is due. So thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for including prophecies in his work to twist our brains. 
to Nine Inch Nails and Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use elements of their music, and to Dinosaur Feathers for their song Please Please George. Links and full details are on the MP3 tag. Visit RadioWesterus.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.